of your Bibles, turn to Matthew chapter 5. We are still working our way through the Sermon, sermon on the Mount. The greatest sermon ever preached, and uh, uh, as usual, we're going uh, a bit slow. In fact, I'd like for us to get all the way through uh, verse 26, but um, uh, we, we won't be able to do that. So we'll look at verse 21 and 22, Lord willing, uh, this morning. Page 852 of your pew Bibles, and with that, if you will, stand with me out of reverence for God's holy word. Matthew the Evangelist writes under inspiration of the Holy Spirit, quoting our Lord and Savior Jesus, Matthew 5, verse 21. You have heard that it was said to those of old, you shall not murder, and whoever murders will be liable to judgment. But I say to you that everyone who is angry with his brother will be liable to judgment. Whoever insults his brother will be liable to the council. Whoever says you fool will be liable to the hell of fire. Let's go to the Lord in prayer. Father, I ask as always you would open our hearts, we would receive your word, our mind we'd understand it, our eyes we would see your kingdom and your glory, our ears we would hear and heed your word, our mouth we would speak the truth of the gospel to ourselves, to one another in love, to this lost and dying world that so desperately needs to hear the truth of, of Christ. And open our hands and feet that we would go in obedience, and here is one where we really need to open our hearts and our minds and our eyes and our ears, our mouth, our hands and our feet. For anger is an issue that we can often justify or overlook and yet it is so crucial to who we are as believers in christ we live in an angry world let us promote a loving gospel may i decrease so you can increase neighbor so we pray amen may be seated people often say that america right now is as divided as it has ever been I'm no expert on all of that. I don't know how you would measure something like that. But I would point out there was a point in our young nation's history we actually killed each other and declared war against each other. That seems like a significant marker worth considering. And although we do generally seem to hate each other, defined by coast and, 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 and middle America and, 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 and whatever the other divisions, right and left, it, it might be, uh, there was a time when violence was quite common, even among our political elites. Uh, leading up to the Civil War, perhaps my favorite example of this is a story known as the caning of Charles Sumner. May 26, 1856, while Congress uh, was debating the Kansas-Nebraska Act, for those of you who weren't paying attention in history growing up, the Kansas, which is probably most of us, uh, the Kansas-Nebraska Act basically made Kansas a slave state, which brought a slavery above the previous uh, Missouri Compromise line. As a result of this act, northern abolitionists became quite incensed. They became very angry because they agreed to the previous compromise, and now that compromise has been contradicted by southern sympathizers. A man by the name of Charles Sumner was one of those northern abolitionists incensed by the Kansas-Nebraska Act. So he stood up one day, actually for two days, two straight days, he gave a long rambling uh, a speech lambasting both the act, its supporters, and most specifically its co-authors. One of the co-authors was a man by the name of Andrew Butler who received the worst of the speech. Sumner had called into question his integrity, his character, and even made personal attacks regarding the man's health and everything else. Two days after that two-day speech, two days after all of that, a group of those who had been personally offended by Sumner's speech 
got together and they tried to figure out what are we going to do to defend our honor? Because what Sumner has done in a public forum cannot stand. They all agreed that Sumner's behavior made him unworthy for a duel. He was below the honor of a duel. I'm just going to let that linger in the air and let you figure it out on your own time. So they thought that if he was too dishonorable to deserve a duel, the only thing fitting is to beat him in public. So days after that speech, Representative Preston Brooks grabbed his thick cane. And although in this picture, this is a, a common character, probably the most common character of the event, uh, you'll notice uh, it, 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 it looked better on my computer. It got cut off. But in the picture, he is holding it by the, the top of the cane. Actually, he would have held it by the bottom of the cane so as to uh, have a greater uh, force upon Sumner. Hit him 30 times with the cane, shattering the cane, which he probably would have hit him more. You can't tell because it was cut off. There are men in the background. That guy is, is smiling. His supporters stood around Sumner and, 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 and uh, uh, Brooks here and protected him to allow Brooks to beat him almost to the point of death. You could not get to him to defend Sumner. When the beating was over with, uh, he simply stood up and walked out, was never reprimanded. Sumner, on the other hand, um, uh, the rest of his life was, was affected by the attack and uh, was taken to a uh, hospital to get medical attention, suffered from strokes and headaches and, and everything else was never really the same. The whole point is to say that I think we have an anger issue, not just as a nation, but as human beings. And this is just one example of two politicians going at it in a public forum. But how many times do we have examples of extreme violence and, and violent rhetoric exchanged between people, even among Christians? Jesus touches on an issue here that we know is a problem, but we rarely address as Christians. Which is why reading Scripture is so helpful because he forces us to, to deal with these issues. Let's start here where Jesus starts, verse 21, where we start with the outward law. In verse 21, Jesus says that you have heard it said of old, do not murder. By a show of hands, okay, who here is guilty of murder? Just real quick, just real quick. This is the part where you, you participate. Who here is guilty of murder? Anybody? Bueller? 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 No, I, I didn't think so. What do you think are the chances that in Jesus' original audience, those who you know, were, were equally innocent of murder? I, I suspect, though I don't know for sure, I suspect that number was similar to ours. I, I wasn't too worried about how many of us were guilty of murder. Although if one of us said, that was me, right? On the news, we, <laughs> this message would have gone really off the rails. Jesus is, of course, quoting from the Ten Commandments, right? You shall not murder. Now, traditionally, that commandment is to be understood uh, and applied to the unjustified taking of life. Thus, in that context, which is why we, most translations, though not all, will say you shall not murder as to oppose you shall not kill. This is why we think soldiers in war, private citizens protecting themselves and their families, the state in executing justice, things like that, are exempt from this. Nevertheless, of the Ten Commandments, this is the one law that most 
most of us agree belongs there, right? There aren't a lot of people who will say that murder in general, eh, it's 50-50, right? You're not going to meet a lot of people who, who believe that. If you do meet someone who says that, you need better friends, okay? You may need to change jobs. Whatever it is, you probably shouldn't be hanging around those people. Sell your house. Find a shack out in the woods. You will be better off, right? Well, it is one that we all agree on. It is also one that's easy to obey. I mean, right now, none of us have broken this, this law. Good for you. Good for you. Well, we can just move on, right? I mean, that's the way the Pharisees would have seen it. See, they would, have, they would have seen this law and they would have thought, well, clearly I can check that off because I'm a good person. I haven't murdered anyone. And God's standard is don't kill people. Don't do that. Well, check that off. When I lay down at night, I can say, you know what? Another day went by and I didn't kill anybody. That's, that's pretty good. God must be really proud of me. Of course, that's easy to do. Before coming to Frankfurt, I applied to be a mailman. I actually got hired to do it the, like the day after you all called with a positive vote. So I said, thanks, but no thanks. But a part of that hiring process was I had to do a drug test. Now, I wasn't too worried about the drug test because I ain't never done drugs, right? And so can I really brag about, hey, I passed the drug test when I've never done drugs, right? There isn't anything really there to, to, to really hang my hat on. So too, you know, this checking off that we've, we've, we've not committed this doesn't make us righteous. But remember what Jesus' standard is here. Go back to verse 20 of the Sermon on the Mount, Matthew 5, 20. For I tell you, unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and Pharisees, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. What is the righteousness of the Pharisees and Sadducees? In this context, he'll give other examples. But with this example, it is the simple statement, I haven't committed murder, therefore I am righteous. Jesus says, unless your righteousness exceeds that, well, how do you exceed not murdering people? And that is the part Jesus looks at. This is the part where he really begins the focus. I mean, think about it. Hardly anyone commits murder out of boredom or entertainment. What we saw last week, and as we'll see with each of these six examples, is Jesus is less concerned with outward obedience he is more concerned with the inward transformation of the hearts. So that's the outward law. Let's look at the inward law. Verse 22. But I say to you, everyone who is angry with his brother is liable to judgment. When my migraine started, it was in sixth grade, and by high school they became intolerable. I really couldn't function in many ways. And so I went to saw a neurologist, and one of the things neurologists ordered was, uh, I think it was a uh, MRI first. And I took the MRI, and we got the results, and the doctor came back and he said, look, the way you're laying, I'm a little suspicious about a certain spot. You need to have another test. Went and had a CAT scan. Everything came back fine. Why would you need to take such, and I've had other tests connected to my hearing loss and migraines and everything else. Why is it that a doctor would order a, those sort of scans? It is because on the one hand, 
migraines and headaches can be signs of stress. It can be genetics. It can be a host of things that aren't really that big of a deal. If, if you have headaches, um, uh, maybe you should stop running your head into a wall after you have another meeting with your boss, right? That will help solve the headache problem, right? Sometimes it is just a lack of sleep. It's one of my, my triggers. Sometimes it's the weather. It's another one of my triggers. Sometimes you just get headaches, right? And there's nothing below the surface beyond just headaches and migraines. Yet at the same time, those could be symptoms of something more severe, like a tumor. And so whenever the doctor says that we do see something on the MRI, but we're a little unsure about it, you need to have another test. What he's communicating to us is it, could, it is possible that what's causing your migraines is something internal, not genetic, but something internal. Well, I lost my hearing. Had to have more tests. Why? Because it is possible the real cause is something internal. Now, you can treat migraines and headaches all you want to with ibuprofen, etc., migraine and imitrex all you want to. But if the problem lies much deeper, you're really wasting your time because you're treating symptoms, not the real problem. So, too, bragging about a declining murder rate in a community, although a good thing, doesn't solve the problem of murder to begin with. Doesn't solve the problem of violence to begin with. Something lies at the core, and that's what Jesus gets here. We might not be murderers, but every single person here this morning is guilty of anger, jealousy, rage, bitterness, envy, wrath, everything. And these inward sins are the real root of the issue for Jesus. Notice what Jesus does in verse 22 is, is he, he, he breaks it down into three parts. They get uh, more and more severe. He, he says, first of all, anger leads to court. Now, notice what he just said there. In verse 21, he says, if you murder, you're liable to the courts. Judgment. Now he says, here's the real truth. If you're angry, you should go to courts. You see what he just did there? He equated your anger, your unhinged, unjustified anger with murder, with murder. Now, right away, we think, well, that's a, that seems a bit extreme. One of the reasons we think it's extreme is because we know we'd all be in prison right now, right? But I want you to pause. Which has contributed more to societal, relational, and personal damage throughout history? Murder? Or unchecked rage. How many more children need to be abused before we realize this is a serious problem? How many more spouses need to be struck? How many more holes in the, in the uh, bedroom wall before we realize this is a real problem? And it's a problem of the heart that no legislator can resolve. The stroke of a pen cannot fix this. We need something more. How many of us grew up in homes where we prayed, Dear Lord, let daddy come home in a good mood. Let it be that mommy is in a better mood today. Because I don't want to eat over dinner in silence because we can't look each other in the eyes. I can't stand having to hide under my bed because daddy is in another rage. How many of us grew up in those sort of homes? 
Anger, he says, leads to court. Notice also, Raka leads to Supreme Court. He goes on there. Not only is angry liable to judgment, whoever insults the ESV, the, the, the Greek word there is Raka, Raka, uh, his brother will be liable to the council. So you see how it's getting, so you have the courts, now you have the council. The council is the Sanhedrin, and that is the, the Supreme Court, you could describe it as, that ended up uh, 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 sending Jesus to, to be crucified. This word Raka is a difficult word to translate. It comes from the Hebrew word meaning uh, um, uh, empty and thus vain or even worthless. But it was at this time a word used for contempt. It was a word used for ridicule. So what we've gone from is inward rage with anger to vocalize rage with raka. Name-calling, reputation, destruction, aggression, tearing someone down really does reveal our hearts. Jesus made this point in Matthew chapter 12. Out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks. Eventually, you will not keep rage in your heart. You will vocalize it with contempt, with, with name-calling, with gossip, with, with everything else. And this is a problem with both men and women. We often think that violence and anger is primarily a male problem, but that, that's not really the way it works, particularly in this passage. And think about it, that, that, that if you're not prone to violence, you're likely prone to verbalize your anger. Gossip and rage and tearing down someone's reputation, contempt and malice and, 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 and uh, setting up an anonymous account so you can bash them online and destroy their, their reputation, right? Th this is what Jesus has, has in mind here. Now, we, we often do this where we tear each other down, we shame others, and we vocally destroy one another. There are likely insecurities in your heart right now that stem from what someone said years, even decades ago. Because we know that physical wounds can heal, but vocal wounds often take much longer. Your marriage is not healthy if you are shaming each other, calling each other names, making false accusations, bringing up old wounds, screaming at each other. Neither is a society healthy when we are engaging in the same activity. What do you think 90% of social media has become? Look, I, I like Twitter's my favorite, and, and I don't know why. It probably says more about me than anything. But, but I do like it. It's easier for me to keep up with news and everything else. But I remember when Twitter was mostly funny hashtags. Like, for example, uh, one hashtag was prosperity hymns, okay? And so I've told you this before. My, the one I came up with, uh, a blessed assurance, right? It went like this. Blessed insurance, this Mercedes is mine. That is hilarious, right? That was Twitter, right? It's mostly people joking about stuff. Now it's just angry mobs accusing each other of being racist. What's happened? What's happened? Notice thirdly, he says the fool... The word fool leads to hell. Anger led to religious judgment. Raka led to civil judgment. Fool leads here to divine judgments. Now, some consider this to be the equivalent of Raka, and I think there's good reason for that. Yet there is some differences. Fool comes from the Greek word where we get our English word moron. It's a very strong word. Yet throughout Scripture, to call someone a fool was to essentially sentence them to judgment, divine judgment, or at least to consider them to be spiritually empty or vain. Can you imagine the type of hate it must take for one to wish another to be accursed of God? We, we, we hear this all the time, and I can't use that language here, certainly. This is a whole nother level of anger and hate. Consider how often we claim we hate someone or wish they were suffering under the judgment of God. 
That is malice. That is blind rage. That is indifference to the point that you, you could not care less what happens to them. You hate them so much. The irony of that is while you're wishing someone to divine judgment, Jesus says, you yourself are guilty and worthy of divine judgments. So at this point, what Jesus has done is he's flipped the issue on its head. He's flipped righteousness on his head. We can applaud ourselves for not being murderers. Later, it would be applaud ourselves for not being adulterers or applaud ourselves for, for not doing this or that. But Jesus says that's, that's not good enough because he has indicted every single one of us as guilty in the eyes of God. Unless your righteousness surpasses that of the religious elites, it's not good enough. Now, if you believe, again, Jesus is being harsh here, let me remind you that Matthew is a good storyteller. So he introduces themes, and like any good storyteller, he will develop those themes. And here Jesus has, again, he's pointed out the scribes and the Pharisees. He says, your righteousness must exceed that. So, so the, 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 the religious elites will come and say, we've not murdered anybody. We're not guilty of anyone's death. See how holy we are. Don't you want to be like me? But if you keep reading Matthew's gospel, you realize they're not just guilty of the inward sin of anger and rage and, 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 and indifference. They're guilty of the outward sin. Can I show you? I'll give you a few examples. I took a lot of these out. Here they are. In Matthew chapter 9, Jesus does a few miracles and he does a couple of things. And they come to the disciples and say, why does your teacher eat with, you know, tax collectors and sinners? You, you see the, 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 the contempt already? You're not like one of us. Now, see, if they will not address that heart issue, it will lead to something more violence. It will lead, that is an inward issue, that will manifest itself outwardly. In the same chapter, the Pharisees said, he cast out demons by the devil himself. In chapter 12, they'll use the word Beelzebub, which is a clear reference to, to, to the devil. So what they're saying is, it isn't just that we don't like who he will associate himself with. It is that in so doing and following his teaching, we think he is demonic himself. You see the increase of rage. You see how this is being vocalized. You see what has began with, 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 with contempt is now being vocalized publicly. Anyone who follows him is demonic themselves. You see the progression? Chapter 12, the Pharisees went out. They conspired against him how to destroy him. Again, these are just three examples. If you, you can do a study of it in Matthew's gospel, you're going to see it gets worse and worse and worse as it goes. And where does it all climax? The cross. Why? Because that's how violence works. No one wakes up one day and says, you know what? I've decided I'm going to beat someone with my cane. It starts with the heart's. I was offended. My feelings were hurt. You dishonored me and my family. I'm just sick and tired of putting up with you. You're a nuisance to me. I don't want to be friends with you anymore. And as it builds, as it builds, as it builds, it becomes violence. Consider what the murder rate would be in our world today if we could cure this problem. In the health field, prevention is the name of the game, right? You go to your doctor and say, hey, doc, I'm having a problem. You know who he'll say? Lose weight. Sleep better. Exercise. Right? Those sort of things, right? Why? Because what he's saying is, is that if, if, you will, if, if you will do preventative measures, that contributes to your long-term health. 
Now, that is true, right? If, if, if you want to avoid skin cancer, wear sunscreen. If you want to avoid dehydration, you should drink some water once in a while, right? right? We understand this. Yet, when it comes to violence, you and I rarely talk about the heart. We only talk about the acts. What we should do is get rid of this. What you do is, 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 is put a security cameras here. What we need to do is try this or that. And somehow these outward deeds will fix the heart. And we wonder why it doesn't work. Here's the thing. Before we clench our fist, before we load our gun, we will sharpen our tongue and we will poison our hearts. That is why we need the gospel more than anything. Jesus warns us of this in Matthew 15, For out of the heart comes evil thoughts, murder, adultery, sexual immorality, theft, false witness, slander, many of which you will find in Matthew chapter 5 alone. Your righteousness must exceed that of the religious elites. In 1 John 3, in the context of speaking of Cain, everyone who hates his brother is already a murderer. It's already a murderer. You see, we must address the inward in order to address the outward. Well, time won't allow us to look, as we said, to the rest of this. Jesus doesn't stop his discussion of verse 22. He continues in verse 23, goes all the way down to verse 26. We will have to postpone that the next week. And what he does, he offers a very practical advice on how to address anger in our hearts, how to address hatred in our very souls. Before we, we, we can get there, can we just, for the, the time that remains, can we talk briefly about Jesus and the cross? Because we can't really appreciate what Jesus says here about a righteousness that surpasses the Pharisees and, 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 this, and, and the scribes unless we talk about Jesus and the cross. No law can cure your envy. No legislation can cure your malice or hate. Only grace can do that. So it is imperative we talk about grace. Can I make just three points and we'll call it a day? Number one, Jesus never chose resentment. He never chose resentment. One of the things that you will find people do, particularly Christians, is they will justify their anger by attaching their anger to Jesus' wrath in the temple. Have you noticed that you've done this? I know you have because we all have, right? I've done it. Well, of course I'm angry. Hey, don't get mad at me, right? Uh, because, because Jesus grabbed a whip and just threw down in the temple. I mean, clearly I should be able to do whatever I want, right? Now, we'll look at that passage, Lord willing, this evening, but what, what that story tells us is that righteous anger is a good thing. What it doesn't tell us is what to do with unrighteous anger. It doesn't address the issue. Look, you being mad because your feelings were hurt because of what someone posted online is not righteous anger. You're probably going to have to just get over that. You being angry because you didn't get the promotion, that isn't justifiable angry. Anger, right? So, so, so that passage doesn't apply to the problem of unrighteous anger. What is interesting is, however, Jesus never chose angry, anger when he was reviled, when he was hated, when he was rejected, abused, betrayed, mocked, or even crucified. Never chose anger. The times you would expect Jesus to want to throw down. The times you expect Jesus to, 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 to eat his spinach and go out like uh, Popeye, Right? It is at those moments he was most gentle, most patient, most loving. He never chose anger when something was done against him personally. Matthew chapter 
5, remember what he said earlier in the Beatitudes. Blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. Rejoice, be glad, for your reward is great in heavens, for so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. Jesus lived that. When the mob came with billy clubs and torch and pitchforks in the middle of, of, of the garden to come and arrest him, he surrendered. When he was accused of being Satan himself, he gently addressed the accusation, went on with his life. When people rejected him because he refused to be made king, he gently responded favorably. Jesus would choose forgiveness. Jesus would choose love. Jesus would choose patience and meekness. Solomon made this point in Proverbs. He says, a soft answer turns away wrath, but a harsh word will stir up anger. This is one of the lessons I've had to learn in recent weeks because I am prone to harsh words. And, and particularly with my sarcasm, it can sting when I, when I cease caring. Right? It's, it's one of the things I have to work on. But, but one of the things I have found that if you will respond to people who make accusations and charges with gentleness and calmness, you will save yourself perhaps a relationship, but you will save yourself a lot of agony, drama, and unnecessary nonsense. It's almost like God wrote the Bible. So first of all, Jesus never chose resentment. Secondly, Jesus demanded surrender. One of the things that lies at the root of our anger, resentment, and all the rest is that we get angry when we don't get what we want. We get angry when we don't, we don't get what we want. Hey, boss, I wanted that promotion. Didn't give it to me. Now I'm angry. Hey, spouse, I, I wanted us to go on this sort of trip, but we didn't do it. Now I'm angry. You're not meeting my needs, my expectations, my demands. Angry. Now, it may start out with contempt. It may start out with, with, with passing words of sarcasm. But before long, it will measure itself by, by malice and anger and bitterness. And we will vocalize that, maybe even physically demonstrate it. James warns us of this. What causes quarrels and what causes fights among you? The answer, of course, is business meetings. But he goes on and says, is it not this, that your passions are at war within you? You desire to not have, so you murder. You covet and cannot obtain, so you fight and quarrel. You do not have because you don't ask. Then he'll say that that you won't ask because of your pride, and the things you do ask for, you want because of your pride, so God doesn't give it to you. It's a hard issue that's dividing. You know, I've never been angry when I got my way. Never got angry and got my way. In 2013, I know that year doesn't exist in college basketball, but in 2013, when the University of Louisville won the championship, you know what I did? I punched a hole in the wall. I was so happy. I was so happy. Just punched that hole in the wall. No, of course I didn't. I had a a little toddler, right, sleeping next to me on the couch. He fell asleep, little boy. And and I I, I was like, "This this will never happen again. In like 10 years, they're going to win four games and we're going to be proud of them. This is how bad it's going to get, right? But, 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 but we were shouting and we're screaming, right? Because everything I ever wanted happened. Never in my life did I get angry because I got what I want. But nearly every time I didn't get what I wanted, I threw a fit. I'm sure that's just a me problem, not a you problem. What often lies at the root of such anger is pride, selfishness, and entitlements. The gospel demands we surrender our rights and entitlements to Jesus. In Matthew chapter 16, then Jesus told his disciples, if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself, take up his cross, and follow me. One person did that in the Bible. His name was Simon of Cyrene. He picked up his cross and followed him, literally, to Calvary. His disciples didn't. 
because they hadn't learned what surrender is. The average American evangelical has yet to discover what real spiritual surrender means. We'll hold fast to our anger. We'll hold fast to our bitterness, our wrath, our entitlements, and our pride rather than surrender them to Christ. In so doing, we experience, when we surrender our very being, we experience the freedom of leaving everything under God's just control. Paul tells us this in Romans 12, quoting the Old Testament. Beloved, never avenge yourselves, but leave it to the wrath of God, for it is written, vengeance is mine, I repay, says the Lord. At its core, anger is an expression of faithlessness. It is to express our lack and faith of a God of vengeance. Will you this morning surrender your anger? Will you surrender your pride? And will you leave it before the Lord by faith? One last thing. Jesus was crucified. If Jesus can surrender to the cross without rage, without violence, what excuse do you and I have when we don't get along with our coworkers? What excuse do we have with personality differences? What excuse do you and I really have? Jesus was unjustifiably crucified because of rage. Remember what we discussed about the Pharisees. The inward had turned outward. The spiritual had become physical. Maybe you're here this morning and you have been deeply wounded by a spouse. Maybe you've been wounded by a parent, co-worker, or someone you deeply love. And as you've continued... As life has gone on, those wounds haven't healed, but they have sunk deeper and deeper and deeper. And we'll talk more about that next week, Lord willing, but maybe you're here today and that's, that's you. And no one really knows it, but you fantasize about your revenge. You contemplate about what you're going to say when you get the chance. You've allowed your anger to define your relationship. You hold on to anger as a source of pride. Please know that in light of the cross, enough blood has already been shed. You can be liberated from such rage. You can be free from such contempts. You can be free from such malice. You may not be able to control the reactions of others, but you can control your own. And I beg of you to look at the cross. God's vengeance has been satisfied even against those who have sinned against you. Do you believe in the cross? Do you accept God's forgiveness as being real and that you are free from all of these things? And do you accept that at the end of the day, whether in this life and the next, God's justice will reign and he will be glorified in the end? The only thing that will heal that relationship, the only thing that will bring peace, the only thing that will satisfy your wrath is the grace of God accomplished at the cross. Will you choose today peace? Will you choose forgiveness? Will you not choose to heal? That will only happen when our righteousness exceeds that of the Pharisees and the scribes when we come to the cross. So I don't know what it is, what burdens you are carrying here this morning, but I do know the answer is that you need to come to Jesus.
Will you lay your contempt? Will you lay your malice? Will you lay your envy and your bitterness and your anger at the foot of the cross? Will you repent of your anger and rage and how it has ruined so many relationships? Will you contemplate, as we'll see next week, the need to reconcile with bridges you have burned? Will you come today in repentance, knowing there is a better way, and it is the way of Jesus? Come, let us surrender all. Let's pray. Our Father, I ask that you would be so kind as to help us.